0: Al always says, like, we made the first, like, white guy, Chinese guy, buddy movie without Kung Fu in it. You know, he's, like, very <laughs> proud of it. Like, I can't think of another one. He's like, Shanghai Noon is, like, the closest thing to this, and that's, like, full of Kung Fu. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, you're right.
1: Brian Smith here, and welcome to the Dream Path Podcast, where I try to get inside the heads of talented creatives from all over the world. My goal is to demystify and humanize the creative process. And make it accessible to everyone. Now let's jump in. Carson Mell is on the show. Carson is a screenwriter, author, producer, animator, and actor. If you've listened to the last two episodes, you've already heard a lot about Carson. But for those who still need to catch up, Carson was a writer and story editor on the HBO series Silicon Valley, created by Mike Judge. He also wrote on Eastbound and Down, starring Danny McBride, and HBO's anthology series room 104. Carson also wrote the screenplay for the comedy The Long Dumb Road, directed by Hannah Fidel and starring Jason Mansoukas and Tony Revolori. In the world of animation, Carson created the series Tarantula, executive produced and starring Danny McBride. Carson's most recent film is Some of Our Stallions, which he wrote, directed, and starred in. Executive produced by Mike Judge, Some of Our Stallions is a comedy-slash-drama about two friends, Beautiful Bill and Andy, who are on a quest for friendship and romantic love as they both struggle with mental illness. On this quest, they meet a character named Bonnie, played by Olivia Taylor Dudley, and a series of misadventures ensues, which test the limits of that friendship, as well as Andy's ability to be in a romantic relationship. I raved about this movie in Olivia's and Al's interviews, but I'll say it again here some of our stallions is a special film hilarious tense and awkward but also heartfelt and sweet you can watch some of our stallions wherever you rent your movies on demand so without further ado let's jump into my chat with the multi-talented brilliant yet humble carson Mel. carson mel welcome to dream path podcast
0: thank you for having me
1: yeah you look really different from the movie some of our stallions
0: yeah i'm, I'm groomed
1: <laughs> Not as hairy. Yeah. Yeah. I have a lot to talk to you about because, of course, I watched some of our stallions and that's what we're here to talk about primarily. But I also watched The Long Dumb Road. Oh, cool. Just to get a sense of, you know, a little more of your writing style. And I know your, your Silicon Valley writing and, and that type of thing. But I, w- I was really impressed with that film. You know, it's, it's remarkable to me how many movies are out there that completely take me by surprise that I've never heard of before. And I don't know if it's just because, you know, yeah, right. I'm, I'm just like out of, out of touch, out of tune with, you know, what's going on or is there's just too much content, but this was a great road movie.
0: Oh, good. I'm so glad you dug it. Yeah. Th- there's a lot of content now, isn't there? Yeah. It's sort of, uh, yeah. And even, you know, I'm reading my friend's book right now. My friend uh, Matthew Spector has this book that just came out called Always Crashing in the Same Car. And it's about his kind of deep dives into 70s cinema. Hmm. And I'm finding out there's stuff back then that it sounds like literally made for me that I'd never heard of. You know, but his like there's an there's a western Monty Hellman did a Western, I think he directed it called The Shooting. With jack nicholson and warren oates what and i, I know like i'm obsessed with warren oates i never heard of it yeah so i'm i'm now i gotta track down a copy of that
1: yeah I, I think you could probably spend the rest of your life just looking at prior content and not focus on anything within the last decade or beyond <laughs> and still not get through it all
0: yeah yeah
1: but the long dumb road that cast and we'll, we'll get to some of our stallions here in a minute but that cast i found to be Really impressive in terms of like the cameos, like Annie Letterman was in there, and and, and Livingston, and and of course you know Mansoukas and yeah. you know just this really great comedic cast. Were you part of that process as a writer and in attaching some of that talent, or were you just sticking in your lane of writer?
0: On that movie, I was sticking in my lane because we had my friend Hannah and I had had we wrote the movie on spec and. When we were writing it, we, you know, I think like uh, there was going to be some involvement for me at that stage, but it happened at the same time that I was making my animated television show Tarantula, mm-hmm. which was, you know, more than a nine to five. So I was so focused on that that I, that was the only thing I was doing while I was doing that.
1: The road movie genre, is that something that you connect with personally? Is, is it an easier. Uh, genre to tackle on spec What? why did you choose a road film for for this project
0: it was actually the, the it was based on a true story of our friend who picked up a hitchhiker our friend uh nat sanders picked up a hitchhiker and had a weird long road trip with him so it kind of organically became a road movie but then i'm a big fan of the uh the 80s r- road movies um I'm forgetting the writer's name you probably will remember who did like planes trains and autom- automobiles and dutch mm-hmm. and uh, there might be another road movie in the bunch i'm forgetting but those two especially i really liked uh as a kid yeah so i love the I, yeah i like the shape of it and they all kind of have this i mean so many movies have the same or like a standard sort of shape but i feel like rom-coms and road movies like really have the same shape where you got to like lose the vehicle and things have to just you know get worse and worse and worse
1: right and then there's the barroom fight and yeah you know running away from the melee and yeah the, the it has those elements but it also has a very unique you know blueprint that makes it yeah pretty fun
0: i mean whatever vessel you're filling in it's all about uh finding you know story it for the most part you know has beginning middle end and it's there's always some kind of resolution, uh, or not always, but usually. So I feel like it's whatever colors you're using to fill in those, fill in the story. It will always give something that's its, flair or lack thereof, you know, mm-hmm. so.
1: Yeah, so when you say you wrote it on spec, I know what that means, but for my listeners, what is writing something on spec? What does that mean?
0: Well, I, it's, it's short for speculative or speculation. Essentially, you just write a script hoping that someone will finance it and you'll get to make it versus the more traditional studio route of coming up with an idea, pitching the idea, getting paid to write the script, and then making the movie. So it's, it's how you break in and it's how most, well, maybe not most produced, but most scripts are written that way because you have to do a few spec to learn how to write. I know very, very few people who've been paid to write everything they've written. I do know a few lucky people like that, but very few. So,
1: so obviously the the most ideal situation is a studio or some financing, you know, person pays you in advance so you know you're going to get paid, you know that it's likely to be made, but when you're writing on spec, there's just a lot of unknowns and a lot of moving parts and what are the stats on spec scripts? I would imagine it's pretty Pretty dark, <laughs> pretty ominous for writers. That-
0: oh, I can't. Remember what percentage is produced? Yeah, I don't know personally. I could say maybe like five percent of my might have been. No, actually, entire now that I've had a few movies produced, I've probably written fifth. I'm trying to think like complete because if you count things that don't, you know, I would say very few mm-hmm. get produced. Three percent, but I don't even know if it's much higher for scripts that are purchased. You know? Yeah. Very few scripts get made in general. In fact, the friend I'm thinking of who has been paid to do all his writing, I don't think he's had a produced script. So hmm. it's a good question. I don't know if there's anyone out. You, you might be the person to crack it if you keep asking uh, your writer guests, you know.
1: I, I was I was talking to Jeffrey Paul King on the podcast recently, and he, I think he had a, um, gosh, it was like a Writer's Guild stat or something like that. He said that basically... If you want to be a television writer, like there's, there's more people that make it into professional baseball every year than make it into TV writing.
0: Yeah. In fact, that's, yeah, they tell you that at the WGA, uh, uh, in our coronation or what have you, your first meeting, they tell you that stats, you can tell your parents. Yeah. So (laughs) this was harder than baseball.
1: Make them feel a little bit better about their child's life choices.
0: I will say there's probably a lot more people who want to play baseball though. Right. Um, I don't know.
1: Yeah, probably, probably, yeah. For me, anyway, writing seems to be more of a black box, or to put it more specifically, Hollywood and television writing seems to be more of a black box in terms of what goes on behind the scenes, what happens in the writer's room, how do you get into the writer's room. And that's why I really enjoyed hearing from Jeffrey Paul King, who he was on Elementary, uh, or he was the writer and producer on Elementary for you know, seven seasons and has this new show out on the CW called The Republic of Sarah but he talked about you know starting basically as an intern at a talent agency and you know just starting from the bottom basically making coffee and tea for people but um the yeah the the whole trajectory and and blueprint of how you get into your business Carson is a code that I've been trying to crack through these interviews for the last couple of years and it seems to be a function of like really, really, really hard work. Yeah, uh, some degree of luck, mm-hmm. and uh, of course talent, but very, very difficult to get in and stay in.
0: You know, I I came out here from Arizona, and I had family. One of my uncles had worked at NBC as a cameraman for a while, like a camera operator. But other than that, I didn't really have. I I, I had very very few connections, and I think you know, as a criticism of myself. It, in my 20s, I don't think I was very uh, like curious enough to figure it out. I didn't realize that there was kind of a more traditional path into a writer's room, like that involved like the things you're talking about, becoming an assistant, you know, going from intern to PA to writer's assistant, and then being in a writer's room. I didn't know that was a path even, and I and I didn't realize that until I was in a writer's room that was a path. I was like, oh, that might have been faster than the one I took, which. When I was in Arizona I took a screenwriting class and the teacher who was a reader out in Hollywood she she uh you know just read scripts and, and wrote coverage on them she basically said like if you move out to LA with no connections expect it to take you 10 years to get a job and that's almost to the day about how long it took me to get staffed on a TV show oh. so yeah, I, for me, they, well, and then, and then since then, I met, I met with some of the screenwriting students uh, back in Arizona who were out here for some reason. I forget why they were out here in a group, but we all had lunch together because I wanted to kind of tell them how I see is the best way to crack in. And I would say the thing that I see work the most is if you can entertain someone with something you've made versus show them your writing, that's the way to crack in. So what I guess what I mean is like for me it was my cartoons that I made uh they saw them in the at HBO and they also read a novella I wrote and that was kind of what led me into their world so it was never it actually wasn't with a screenplay I don't think anyone who has hired me has read anything I've done they've just watched my cartoons because it's like hmm. at the end of the day you're presented you know you're you're hiring writers and someone sends you a YouTube link and a script. Well, script is like, even good scripts aren't fun to read. You know, it's an inherently <laughs> clumsy, it's like trying to read a recipe and decide if the cake's going to taste good right. versus like, if someone can just give you the slice of cake, you're like, oh, I would hire this person to write recipes. I like this cake, you know? Uh-huh. Nice. So that's, that's my advice is to try to create something finished and entertaining that you can send out, but whether it be even a short story, I think would be uh A good way in you know Mm
1: -hmm. yeah something that's a little more accessible
0: Mm -hmm. but then you do need to know screenplay format once you're in that writer's room so i guess i was lucky in that i had written so many spec scripts that i was not intimidated by the form you know Mm
1: -hmm. so the tell us about the writer's room on silicon valley and and what that was like and uh in working with all of that amazing talent just knowing that you have these actors that are just iconic comedic actors who are executing the ideas and the the words that you're putting on paper.
0: I mean, it was a good feeling to know that your hard work would be interpreted well by the actors and it, and then shepherded by very hardworking people with good taste. You know, Mike Judge and Alec Berg who ran in the room. Uh, you obviously can trust them to uh, pick the best bits and use the best bits of things. And I think. I think the actors felt that way too and they felt comfortable maybe too comfortable sometimes improving and knowing that they weren't going to be made uh, to look goofy by the you know by Mike and Alec who were overseeing the edits they knew they could they could take it to 11 and experiment but know that only those best pieces would make it into the cut mm-hmm.
1: Did you find yourself connecting with Mike Judge on uh, on the level that you know, you're both animators Yeah, and maybe you have that in common.
0: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, in my interview, I think that's all I talked about with him was that, that great feeling of like, oh, I, there is actually a way to make a movie by myself for very, very little money. And that kind of being freeing that if you do want to express yourself with film, there is that version where you don't wait for a budget and you don't wait for money you just draw, draw it all. <laughs> yeah yeah and we're both from the southwest so we 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 uh and weirdly there's not a ton of people from like new mexico and arizona in la i don't know why but so we connected over just our regional having the same kind of regional background you know
1: yeah i didn't know mike was from new mexico is, is that his um home he was raised the, there yeah he was raised in new mexico
0: i think he lived in texas for a while too but mostly new mexico albuquerque
1: yeah I know where he lives now because he was neighbors with my friend in santa monica i was just down there a couple of years ago jogging by his house but oh. yeah <laughs> uh so mike judge i i would imagine that having him connected to your project with some of our stallions was um important yeah. and helped in some way to get the word out and get financing can you tell us about uh, attaching him to the project and how you convinced him
0: yeah um It was funny. I was kind of shy about reaching out to him. It's one of those things where, like, when people you've worked with have become friends, you don't want to put them in an awkward position because you don't. I value friendship so much more than anything uh, professional that I would never want those things to get in the way. So I was pretty shy about, even though I really wanted his his counsel on the on the script and other aspects. I was shy about approaching him. But then my producer Al D, who's also in the movie. He just said "Well, just write him an email he can just say no and i don't it's not rude you've worked for him you know and he likes your sense of humor so i sent mike the script and he just thought it was really funny and so he said yeah i totally uh want to be a part of this and um yeah helped us with everything with casting with getting line producers in canada and then also he he's in the movie and he did a great job so mm-hmm. uh, that was really cool too in your
1: email did you tell him that you wanted him to be the gun dealer
0: no that came later yeah. yeah it was like he he signed on to ep it and then i was looking at like other parts and there's not like a the movie's so heavy on beautiful bill and andy all the other parts are kind of small but that was one of the bigger ones that i knew uh we could have fun with together so um mm-hmm. i was really glad that he uh yeah signed up to do it and he flew himself up to canada and everything he's a oh yeah yeah mike's a total trooper he's like he's really down to He's still really like down to make stuff and is excited about movies, which is really cool. That get that that gets burned out of a lot of people in L.A. I think.
1: Yeah, well, he could have. I mean, at his level, he could have insisted on shooting that scene in L.A. and Just say, let's you know, get a hotel room and just knock it out and not fly up there. But that's good commitment on his part.
0: Yeah, Mike's not a prima donna, and I think they really held him up at customs too. He was like, so he had to deal with some bullshit to get up there. <laughs>
1: It's funny his line in that movie. The, the the one line that sticks out in that hotel room is you need to get the fuck out of here. <laughs> and I was I was like that's probably not the first time he's said that <laughs> said that to somebody. <laughs> you need to get the fuck out
0: of here. It's so, true, yeah.
1: Kind of rolled off his tongue, right? Comes naturally.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> so tell, you know, I talked to Olivia yesterday and I talked to Al this morning. So this is, a, this is going to be fun to roll out three episodes talking about this movie. So I have their perspective on how things came together. But tell us, in your words, how this script came to fruition as a film, when it started in terms of the writing process, and what your thoughts were about how to put together the cast.
0: Really, the movie, well, so there's kind of a long story about how the script happened which was, it was built off the back of kind of a huge disappointment and a huge failure. I'd written this movie called From Golden Oaks. And this was before I'd had any professional writing jobs. It was one of my many, many spec scripts. And this was, I wrote that script in 2010. And it was about this character named Clark who was released from a mental institution after a violent outburst. And he was trying to get back with his wife and she didn't really want anything to do with them. And he kept running into friends and peers and they were all acting very strange. So this character decides, oh, I know what I'll do. I'll throw a big party. And that way I can get everybody together in one place. They can see that I'm sane and healthy and happy. And I can kind of have like this coming out or uh, this return to the world of the sane. Well, throwing a party, if for anyone who's ever done it is super stressful. So it's like watching the kind of stress of this this character who's grappling with his own mental stability, try to put together and throw a party. That's what the movie was all about. And it took place mm-hmm. uh, like acts two and three were all at the party. And in that script were these antagonists named Beautiful Bill and Andy who had just gotten out of a mental the same mental institution. And they knew Clark from the inside. He'd foiled one of their escape attempts. They wanted basically revenge. Uh, on him for being happy and healthy even though he was struggling too so they go to the party and try to ruin it what happened next was that script just kind of sat around my apartment forever but then my favorite comedic actor at the time whose name i won't use because i want to like respect their anonymity um he got a hold of the script um i'm just going to call him jack nicholson it was not jack nicholson okay it wouldn't have even made sense with someone his age but let's say So Jack Nicholson gets a hold of the script. It was the person who got it was like a bankable actor who I like as much as Jack Nicholson. Mm -hmm. And he was like, Hey, I really like this movie. Like, I would like to play Clark. And this was happening to me, someone completely on the outside of Hollywood. I was like, oh my God, like this is like my dream come true. Like my favorite actor wants to make this movie with me. Like I couldn't even believe it. And I was so over the moon. And we had a few clumsy sort of meetings because I was figuring it out. It would be my first movie. I was very intimidated, et cetera. But still, it felt like things were on track to actually happen. And then I went to see a movie to relax uh, one weekend. And the trailer for that movie, Silver Linings Playbook, came up. And it was the exact same premise. It was really, I I felt like I was watching a trailer for my own movie Mm -hmm. with like a bunch of dancing stuff thrown in. Yeah, and I was just like, my stomach sunk, and I was like, no, no, it's fine. He, uh, people make similar movies all the time, but then Monday comes around, I get an email from Jack Nicholson where he's like, I saw the trailer for Silver Linings Playbook. I feel like it's probably too similar to the, our idea or to your script. Let's like find something else to work on down the line, oh. which means like, you know, who knows if that'll ever happen?
1: Yeah, devastating.
0: Yeah, it was devastating, and it all went away, and. Then I started to think like, you know, the thing I liked most about this script was not the Clark character, even though I think Jack Nicholson, you know, would have made it awesome. The thing I liked the most was Beautiful Bill and Andy. They, I was cracking up every time I wrote their scenes. I had, I had the donut with the cigarette in it from the beginning. And so I was like, I'm just going to write a script about them. And so I don't remember how long it took or anything like that, because this was like 2012. And I just wrote, sat down, drank a ton of coffee, wrote the script, uh, printed it out, drew, you know, made a bunch of notes on it, with red pen, and then I put it in a drawer, and kind of forgot about it. And then um, I was moving or I was cleaning my apartment out maybe like in 2016, 17. And I found the script and read it and was like surprised by it because I barely remembered writing it. And I really liked it. And I was like, man, I'm going to, I think I can make this. It's not that complicated. It's like written for a pretty, you know, uh, modest budget. I think I could, I think I could make this. So, and then I got really excited about it, but nothing happened. And then meanwhile, there was another script I wrote called um, uh, The Living Man. That was about a, it's kind of like a Frankenstein uh, road movie. And I was trying to get financing for that. But again, I was put into this position where to get the money I needed, I would need a big star to read the script like this script commit to being in it. And it just wasn't happening. Um, but the producer I met through that was Al D, mm. uh, AKA Andy in the movie. Yeah. And then he said, you know, I can finance something without a big star for a more modest budget. If you have anything like that's smaller in scale in this movie, he's like, we could just act in it. Even I, I he's like, I've done acting with my friends. I want to do more. Uh, I know you've done a lot of acting. Do you have anything? And then I sent him the script. He loved it uh which was awesome and then i did some rewriting of it and w- that was it we were off to the races he introduced me to olivia who he thought would be a good bonnie and i agreed and then we cast everybody else uh i cast david zellner uh just because he's my friend and i thought he'd be right for the role mm-hmm. and everybody else other than mike and tim heidecker who were people i knew through work and really like everyone else came through traditional casting in canada um I think that's correct. Yeah.
1: As you may have noticed, there are great resources and advice mentioned in all our episodes. And for many of them, we actually collect all of these resources for you in one easy place. Our newsletter. You can go to dreampathpod.com newsletter to join. It's not fancy, just an email about each week's episode, featured artists, and resources to help you on your journey. Now, back to the interview. Well, lot to unpack there. Um, David Zellner played Sam, right?
0: He did. He plays Sam at the end of the movie. That's correct.
1: That scene where he shows up with the alcohol, and, and I'm not going to give too much away here, but th- there's a scene that is just outstanding in terms of the facial expressions. How subtle his performance is there when he's interacting with Beautiful Bill and Andy, and oh, great! And his, I mean, you can see so much happening with you know the, these close-ups on his face and that's the part of the movie that i was, was talking to olivia about this the like the juxtaposition between the comedy elements and just how freaking dark this movie gets it's a wild ride and that, oh cool you know uh, that last scene was just super intense with sam's character
0: I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. I wanted to make sure I mean you need to believe that Beautiful Bill is capable of some extreme violence for that scene to have tension. I think we I think we earned it, you know.
1: Yeah, I think you did too. I mean, Beautiful Bill, one thing that, you know, I well, I I was telling Olivia this. I used to work in a psychiatric hospital. So I have personal experience with a lot of psychiatric patients and the uh you know, sort of the manic parts of that behavior and the you know, the over the top nature of some types of mental illness where you can have someone who's just extremely charismatic and articulate and as a result like sort of a magnetic personality you're like wow this is this is a lot of fun you know we're we're going on an adventure but then there's a point where you're like okay you start to get a little scared <laughs> like that's yeah
0: for sure it's sure.
1: like a little too intense and doesn't you know isn't socially appropriate and unpredictable and i think you pulled that off with your character really well
0: Oh thanks a lot that's nice to hear. Yeah, I feel like in I feel like intuition and, and intelligence and mental illness kind of all ride in tandem together. So a lot of mentally ill people are super smart and also very intuitive and you know like he does like whether or not it's a coincidence like he does dream the future essentially in this movie. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. <laughs> beautiful Bill does. So right. he's he, he does have his feelers out more than other people, I think. Uh-huh. Which, you know, that's quite a bit based on family members of my own that I've seen struggle with this kind of stuff. And and uh yeah, I'm glad to I'm glad to hear it came across as true uh feeling true to you.
1: Yeah, it did. Yeah, another thing that you get a sense of is beautiful Bill is really hypersensitive to Loyalty and connections, and so when he senses a connection slipping away, he acts on it like right away. And and it's like it's kind of jarring, you know, when he when he feels like oh this he has that sit down with Bonnie about you know laying down the law basically. All right, yeah. So you guys are <laughs> this is how it's gonna be. Yeah. Um. You know, you're gonna be you're gonna be my mom. <laughs> yeah. And we're gonna we're basically gonna be all be married. Uh, so that was pretty funny,
0: yeah, it's sad. He doesn't understand the dynamic that's likely unfolding. you know, I think that's where where a more sane person would understand sort of the rules of society and what was what what's likely to happen. And I think that's what makes him kind of likable is the assumption that they can all be a trio and a family you know
1: yeah yeah it's it's a great film, so tell me about your approach to Andy's character, when he was a character in the prior screenplay that was similar to Silver Linings, was he an immigrant and did he have an accent? And, and was that written specifically for Al? How did that evolve?
0: No, he was just, I, I you know, I hadn't like thought of, uh, I was seeing more of his demeanor than any, anything like his race or anything. I didn't have that like in down. But he definitely wasn't a Chinese immigrant. That, excuse me, that came with Al. And that actually aspect of it made me really excited because it seemed like more, seemed really fresh. And then it also sort of like felt to me like, um, like Al al always says, like, we made the first like white guy, Chinese guy uh, buddy movie without Kung Fu in it. You know, he's like very <laughs> proud of it. Like, I can't think of another one. He's like, Shanghai Noon is like the closest thing to this. And that's like full of Kung Fu. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, you're right.
1: That's so true.
0: Yeah. Well, it also just speaks to how incredibly conservative Hollywood is. Like, I don't think anyone, like for all the talk of diversity, I don't think anyone but an indie filmmaker would cast out the, you know what I mean? (laughs) Like, they'd get nervous and they'd have like, I can't put it in an email, but I am worried the accent's a little thick. And then the other Uh producer, you know, is like, yeah, I'm a little worried too. Let's not put it in an email, but I'm a little concerned. It's hard to (laughs) But I was like, I don't care. I mean, like, I like that you can't hear every word he says. I like that it's like sometimes the emotion of what he's saying comes across. Uh huh. I like that about it. You know.
1: Yeah. What I appreciated about it, and, and I mentioned this with Olivia, is that, it, and I, I think Al's commentary about there's no kung fu or the fir- This is the first buddy movie with a, a Chinese immigrant where there's no kung fu. But the way I saw it was the movie does not comment on, reflect on. Pay attention to or care about the fact that he's an immigrant and that he has an accent. And I, I love that about the film. I love it because it's like, it's like when you see little people in movies or dwarves, uh, you know, where it, there, there's always something, there's always some type of dialogue that is conscious of that and points to that mm-hmm. and, and makes fun of that in some way. And it's like, we need to have comedy. So let's bring in, you know, a, a little person.
0: Yeah. That's, that's the worst. Right. Yeah. I remember like, you know, as a teenager seeing those movies and like it not making me mad, but then as soon as I grew up, I was like, there's adults making movies like this with these, like, with these jokes in them, like who the fuck are, what is, what is wrong with these people? You know, (laughs) like, why is, anyway, it's just such an incredible, uh, it's so foolish that I just can't believe that adults would make those jokes, you know?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, you, you're sent, the whole sensibility of this film. The same thing with Bonnie Olivia's character. She comes into this film very quickly and could have been sexualized very easily by another director, another producer. Like, hey, you know, we have this, you know, beautiful actress. What are you doing? Why are you not taking advantage of this opportunity to sexualize her like like we do in Hollywood? And it's like, again, there's a relationship there, there's romance, there are sexual undertones, but it's not featured. It's behind the scenes. And that's another refreshing aspect of this movie. And I think if I'm seeing your filmography correctly and your, your writing style correctly, I think this is all you. I mean, this is just your sensibility in the world and is a reflection of how you see the world or how you at least want to see the world. I don't know if that's accurate or not.
0: Yeah, no, I I yeah, that's that's totally true. I like because they're very good friends, you know what I mean? So it's like the the fact that that Aldi or I'm sorry, that Andy is Chinese is like it's just so does not like in any friendship. It's like just not even a factor. Like what would it, what would beautiful Bill care? Right? Right. right. <laughs> it's like I think there's a couple times where he acknowledges it and when they're in a fight, he criticizes his uh, English, but that, that actually came out of an improv that Al D and I, when we were rehearsing, he said something that didn't make sense in English. And I just in character said that to him, you know, angrily. Mm-hmm. And he was like, oh, we have to put that in the movie. We have to put this in the <laughs> script, you know? But yeah, the times where it comes up, it should, be, it should be utterly organic, right? Right. Like if it comes up, you don't say, oh no, we can't go there. But you don't go there to go there, if that makes sense.
1: Mm-hmm. The observation I have about your prior film, *The Long Dumb Road*, the the parallel that I see there too in your writing sensibility is that there are again your characters are just very respectful of women, and you know a road trip movie you just wouldn't expect that. The tropes of road trip movies, it's more raunchy. The main protagonist in the movie is sitting there about to take a picture of this young girl and asks how old she is and then realizes pretty quickly (laughs) bad idea bad idea i'm not going to take this picture it's just a really refreshing perspective on writing and film and television and so thank you for that
0: oh yeah i think i think for long dumb road i have to give the credit to the director hannah for that scene in particular because she uh, i think she came up with that on the spot
1: In terms of everything that you have on your plate and your skill set, I mean, you're a television writer, you're an animator, you're an indie filmmaker, where do you see your career going next or where do you want it to go so that you are, you know, I guess at your highest and best use? And that's that's a term that I use because, you know, I think when people are capable of a lot of things, really talented at five or 10 different things. That doesn't mean that that's where they should be doing those five and 10, th- yeah, five or 10 things. Like, what is your highest and best use now and over the course of maybe the next five years?
0: Well, I have a one year old daughter now, so I'm sort of following the money, to be honest. <laughs> right now, I'm, like, I'm a gun for hire for a while. The highest
1: paycheck. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, I mean, I'm, I'm joking though, because I, I do have some cool opportunities. Um, to do more. Hannah and I are working on some stuff together again, the director of Long Dumb Road. And um, I wrote a book called uh, Field Notes from Dimension X that I'm currently in development, making that a cartoon. And these things take so long that it's such a hard question to answer. And then you have new ideas pop up. I guess for me, I feel like my highest and best use is is writing and directing too. But but writing especially. So, the more time I can spend writing prose or uh, scripts, I feel like I'm, I'm like, that's where I'm, I should be. You know what I mean?
1: Mm-hmm. How did the Room 104 project come about? I know you wrote that one episode for Room 104 with the Duplass brothers.
0: Yeah. Uh, Mark Duplass just reached out to me when he was putting the show together and asked if I wanted to write one of the scripts. And um, he had an idea for like an illegal. Animal salesman and uh, and I pitched him this other idea that I'd been wanting to write for a long time about like a cult member meeting uh meeting like a essentially like a cult cult priest in a hotel room. So he liked the idea. So then I just wrote that for them and uh, yeah, it was simple as that really.
1: So how does that work logistically when someone calls you like Mark who um, has this series and it's HBO, you know, it's on HBO, so it's it's reputable there's there's money there you do have lawyers you have agents that negotiate with Mark or his people is it a handshake deal it, you know do you get a back end as a writer I'm trying to figure out again going back to the black box of what is happening for writers in Hollywood and in television tell us about the logistics as much as you're comfortable sharing
0: it's really it's usually like you you go into like everything is is like yeah we want like that's probably not the best example because that was uh, unusual. I would say like a better example is like the for instance the first thing I ever sold I wrote this book called Saguaro and uh, I sold it to HBO for development and to you know become a TV show which unfortunately or or maybe it's not for unfortunate but it didn't it didn't become a TV show. But the way that worked was I went I pitched it to them. My producers on it had a relationship with HBO and HBO said, yeah, we want it. So I was like, yeah, uh, I, I didn't know what that meant at the time. I was like, okay, I got a TV show. Great. But <laughs> it meant more that I got a pilot deal. And then your lawyer and or agent will negotiate with the network until they get you like the proper credit, the pop- proper payment, which is, you know, is a, on a sliding scale, which um, at the beginning, you know, you get paid like the minimum uh though hbo pays better than the minimum and then you get uh your your credit which is like always uh you always end up an ep but like for like here's something that i i that's like kind of behind the scenes that i can i feel comfortable telling a story about is like when we were in negotiations on that i had no money i had no credits i had never done anything legitimate and my Yeah, managers called me and were like, hey, they don't want to give you an executive producer credit. They want to give you a co-executive producer credit. And that's not fair. So we might have to walk. And I'm thinking like, yeah, right. Like you can, (laughs) I'll be be the, they can call me the janitor, like just make sure I get the check. You know what I mean? Right. (laughs) And I'm like, I was super stressed about it. And then they called me like a few days later and were like, hey, your lawyer talked to them. You got the EP credit. And I was like, okay, great. But then that kept happening to my friends on shows, the exact same pattern, like where it was like, oh, they're only going to give you co-EP. And then it was like, oh, actually you get the EP credit. So I think everyone knows that a show creator will get that executive producer credit, but there's always this dance on the way there that makes it seem like there's this big battle raging behind the scenes when really it's just like, it's kind of a foregone conclusion, what's going to happen. And it just, I don't know, it exists to make the writers sometimes, I think, feel like there's this huge battle going on when the reality is there's not, if that makes sense. But it made me feel good because when my friend called me and was like, they're trying to make me a co-EP on my show this is bullshit i was like i think i think it might just be a little dance going on behind the scenes that is irrelevant to your life right like let it play out for a week and then and she's like okay yeah they fixed it i'm like okay i think this happens a lot
1: (laughs) it's like maybe all the all the studio executives got together in a seminar or something they're like all right we need to make the writers feel as marginalized and irrelevant as possible (laughs) we're going to tell them they don't get the executive producer credit and then we're going to wait and then they're going to feel like they won if we give it to them at the end, you know, some type of weird.
0: That's what I think happens. You know,
1: psychological warfare.
0: Yeah, and it's unfortunate because I mean, everything is a negotiation. Like, yeah, like if uh, even if you, you, if you have X amount of dollars, you can't call and you're hiring a writer, you can't call and say, "Hey, I have X," because their agent's going to say, well, "I need X plus Y." Mm-hmm. So what you have to do is call them and say, "The only money we have is X minus Y." And then when their agent calls and says, actually, we're going to need X plus Y, you go, okay, fine. <laughs> but it's like, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. That, though I do think there's real, ne- there is real negotiation that happens. A lot of times it's sort of not real, but uh, it's like if you watch Shark Tank, it's, it's all the same kind of thing.
1: Do you feel like there is a certain point and maybe you've reached it, maybe you haven't where the hustle stops? Where you can kind of take a breath, kind of be at the Mike Judge level in your career, and uh, or maybe it's a hustle for Mike too. I don't know.
0: Yeah, I, it's hard to say. I think if you want to like change what you're doing, like I definitely feel established as a television writer now. But if I wanted to be a feature writer or make a horror movie or something outside of the box I'm in, then it would be a hustle. Mm-hmm. I do want to make a horror movie, so I think I'm going to have to hustle.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a great time to make horror movies yeah just there's a lot of great ones out there and i think hopefully that means there's a lot of producers willing to fund them
0: it's a weird genre because it's like weirdly doesn't require a star in the same way it's almost like the terror is the star of the movie you know what i mean
1: Mm -hmm. yeah i know jason blum kind of turned it into uh just a juggernaut of you know a, a business in terms of indie horror you know that we didn't see before
0: yeah, like when you think about it even get out is all character actors i mean since then i think the lead has become a star but he wasn't a star when they made that movie
1: yeah i know that jason blum just remade or is in the process of me- remaking with keith thomas i believe firestarter so his indie house a street cred has now turned into big studio remakes and so i think we're going to see some fun things happening in the horror genre in the next few years
0: yeah, I think so. A twenty four has been making a lot of good horror as well.
1: Nice. I'll have to uh, keep an eye out for your work in the horror genre of films, and I'm going to be paying attention to your career from here forward because some of our stallions is just a remarkable film, really special, and I'm I'm really glad that it made it to uh, all streaming
0: platforms. Well, thanks a lot, Brian, and and I really uh, I'm really grateful that you. Uh, articulated that those things that you uh, noticed in the movie it makes me really uh, happy.
1: Absolutely, yeah. It's an honor to be able to comment on it and talk to you about your creative process and hear your story. So, thanks for being on the podcast.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me, Brian. Take care.
1: Hey, thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If so, I have a favorite ask: Can you go to wherever you listen to podcasts and leave me a review? Your feedback is what keeps this podcast going. You can also check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook with the handle at DreamPathPod. And as always, go find your dream path.